thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and we're right now still walking through the sixth seal. We're in chapter 7, and tonight, God willing, we will complete this chapter. We're going to be studying verses 9 through 17. Let me read them to you, and then we'll put them in context. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no man could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and whence have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night within his temple. And he who sits upon the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." very hopeful message that concludes the sixth seal. Re recall the overall structure of that seal. We, last week we looked at the 144,000. I'm going to come back and look at them again tonight a little bit. Where John sees those 144,000 that are signed, that are sealed with a sign of, of the Lord. And then right after that we have this great multitude that no one could number. So there's a number of questions we have to ask ourselves as we look at this text. First of all, who is this great multitude? And more importantly, when does this great multitude show up? Meaning, does it show up at the end of times? Or at the times of John? 
What's the difference between the great multitude and the 144,000? They were sealed. The 144,000 were sealed. The great multitude was not. What are they doing there? Who are they? What do they represent? And why are they? Why are they? What does that mean for them to be in this sixth seal? So if you go back to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, in your Bible, you will see that the structure of this chapter had these three parts. The first one with the angels that are holding the four winds, which we've seen in our previous study to be the actual four horses, the four horsemen that were sent. So there is a delay for the action of those four horsemen until the 144,000 are sealed. Now, the second part of the chapter, we see the 144,000 being sealed. So you'd expect the action to take place. Instead, this great multitude shows up, which was not announced at the beginning of the chapter, where the angel who was sent from the east and said, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. So the action of the angels, those four horsemen that were sent, was delayed until the 144,000 were sealed. Yet, right after the sealing, what do we get? This great vision of the multitudes. So what is the relationship between 144,000 and this multitude? Bokham, an exegete, made a very good observation. He observes that there is a relation between the two segments, the 144,000 and the great multitude, and the relationship between the lion and the lamb. If you recall from chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, uh, verses 5 and 6, John tells us that he is expecting to see the tribe, the, the lion of Judah. In this chapter, we read, Then one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. Remember, we've covered that. So we expect to see a lion and yet a lamb shows up. And the 144,000 that were accounted for starts with which tribe? Specifically, the tribe of Judah. And then we have the multitude. So this double aspect, this duality of Jesus Christ as being the descendant of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, yet at the same time, the Savior of the world, must give us a clue. Jesus in the Gospel of St. John told the Samaritan woman, salvation comes from the Jews. And what is the fruit of that salvation? It is salvation for the whole world. Right? That dynamic which we find elsewhere in Scripture that explains fundamentally the mission of Christ. Christ was born as a Jew. His mother was a Jew. His father was a Jew. Lived among them. Came, as St. Paul tells us, not just for the salvation of the Jew, but the salvation of the whole world. And St. Paul consistently speaks of 
Jews and Gentiles. The letter of the Hebrew is full of this language. The letter of Romans is full of this language. Jews and Gentiles. This double duality is present here again. Who are those 144,000 that were sealed? These are the first Christians who are going to go through that tribulation that is being spoken about here. And many of them live in Jerusalem. Many of them are in Judea where the hardest and harshest part of the tribulation is going to hit. They are being sealed not simply for physical protection. They're being sealed so that they can undergo the tribulation and come out of it as saints. And they will then produce fruit. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it will not produce fruit. So through their martyrdom, they are going to produce fruits for the church. And who are the fruits of this? The multitude that we see. There are clues that we can take from the text itself to explain to us why we can look at it this way. Verse 4, a great multitude which no one was able to number. Do you recall where, where we've heard this before? Not in the book of Revelation, in Scripture. Where's the first place where we hear of a great multitude that no one could number? Genesis, yes. Where? In which conversation? Abraham. The promise made to Abraham that his descendants shall be a great multitude that no one could number. So all the descendants of Abraham come from his seed, from Isaac. And as you recall, this conversation we had about Isaac is that the sacrifice of Abraham was not just the sacrifice of Abraham. According to Jewish tradition, Isaac was 33 years old when he was sacrificed. He was not a kid. He was a full-grown man. And he took on the sacrifice. So Isaac carried the wood, just as Christ carried the cross. Isaac was laid on the altar, just as Christ was laid on the altar. So on and so forth. So from the seed of Abraham, the multitude came that no one could be numbered, right? Through what? That's the key. Through a sacrifice. Abraham had to sacrifice his only son. And his son had to accept that sacrifice so that we can get the great multitude that no one can number. You get it? So likewise, the 144,000 are sealed not simply for physical protection. They are sealed so that they can undergo that tribulation and come out of it as saints. And because of their sacrifice, the great multitude that no one could number. So paradoxically, while the world may look at the destruction of the Christian as a failure of the church, while the world may look at Christians being killed and persecuted as a means to destroy the church, paradoxically, it is precisely the greatest means through which the church grows. I have heard, I don't recall who told me so, but it's, it, it, I found it really striking. Someone told me that the uh, Catholic Chinese, you, want, you know, the, the Church of China is persecuted. 
It's underground, right? Those Catholic Chinese are actually learning Arabic. You know why? They want to go and die as martyrs among Muslims. You see, they get it. We don't. They have the proper outlook on life. We don't. We live scared. We live anxious. We live overly concerned with our fate. We live afraid of being sick. Afraid of dying of this or that or the other. We worry so much about so many things. And the only thing that we really should be concerned about is the kingdom of God. That's what the book of Revelation does for us. It's, it's the, the power of this book is to remind us of our destiny. We're not here to enjoy a comfortable life. That's not the primary purpose. We're here to offer witness of the saving power of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that all of us are going to be called to shed our blood, but it does mean that our outlook on life must not be one of pessimism, must not be one of um, people who are defeated, people who are on a defense, people who look at the events in their world and then wonder what God is all, what, what God is all about. That is not what we're called to be. What John sees with his eyes, we have to understand sacramentally. Namely, that every prayer we say, every little sacrifice we do, every little act of love we do for the sake of Jesus. Not for any other reason. Not because we want to go to heaven. Not because we're going to get something out of it. Not because we want to grow in grace or holiness or anything else. Just for the love of Jesus. Every little flower, every little rose we give to Our Lady just because we want to give her a rose. And no other reason can and will have incredible impact in ways we cannot even conceive. Doing the dishes lovingly for Jesus can conquer the world. That's what this is telling us. The multitude in here is not indicative of the nations. It's not a multitude of nations. This multitude is Israel. Alright? It's one people. One nation. That's an important element to understand. And we're going to come back to it. This promise, the promise that was made to Ab Abraham that your, your descendant will be as numerous as the stars was provisionally fulfilled under Solomon. When Solomon built the temple and Israel was settled, that was the provisional, the temporary fulfillment of this promise. What this vision is showing the Christians living under persecution is that it is about to take place historically. And it did. If you look at all the Catholics from beginning of, from 2000 years until today, and you combine them all together, 
as one people, because this is what they are in heaven. It is a multitude that could not be numbered. All right? So, the way we need to look at this, and we have to be a little bit careful, is that there is, so to speak, a vision within the vision. So the first part of the vision is the 144,000 that are going to be sealed. And then what is shown is the fruit that is going to come out of the sealing of those 144,000. God has given them the grace to be able to live through this tribulation, and they will. And then we see the fruits that they are going to produce. So essentially, from a literal sense, from a historical sense, the, 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 the multitude is the extension of the 144,000. It's like the 144,000 is the acorn and the multitude is the tree. So they're, organically, they're one and the same. They belong to the same family. But from a historical perspective, you have, so to speak, a vision about the 144,000 and then another one that says, I'm showing you the acorn right now that I have just blessed. <coughs> I'm going to show you what it's going to look like when, when it's going to be a tree. You see what I'm saying? <coughs> so from an anagogical sense, if you remember the four senses of Scripture, the sense that has to do with the church and the end of times, the 144,000 and the great multitude show, show us the fullness of the church. That the church is one. Because they're all one people standing up in heaven together, praising God. The church is holy. Do you, do you wonder why, we, why in the creed we say we believe in one holy, <coughs> Catholic, apostolic? When we say holy, and we're living in the United States, and we have all these problems, and all those Catholics who act anything but holy... You'd wonder, why do we say that? How could we believe in one holy? What's so holy about the church? Well, here it is. That's what we're talking about. This vision right here. That is the holy church. When we say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we do not mean, we do not imply that we're talking about the church temporal in which we are right now. What we are right now is a sifting ground. This is a filter. It's a filter. Many who come to the church, many, some number, I don't know what the number is, but some will make it to heaven, other, others will not. Effectively, some do belong to the church, as we see it in, in, in heaven, in eternity, and others do not. And there are those who are outside, who through the grace of God, actually belong to the church, and others who do not. So the one holy, holy, is about the church triumphant at the end of times. It is going to be holy. But in a fundamental sense, since this church is outside of time, it is already holy. You get it? And that's what we see here. It is this one holy, Catholic, universal church. That's what this vision is showing us. So, how do we reconcile these two perspectives? The first one, temporal, where you have 144,000. The second one, eternal, where you have the multitude. How do you bring them together? 
Is this, is this vision only an impression that St. John is receiving, or is it a reality? If you really think about it, the only way, the only historical action, the only historical action that can bring people from the past and from the future and angels all together is the Mass. Nothing else will. Nothing else does. When we celebrate the liturgy, when we celebrate the Mass, we're celebrating the one eternal Mass in heaven with our priest, the Lord Himself. And we are all brought together, Catholics across time and space, across cultures, all brought together into this assembly. So guess what? Guess who is in this assembly? Hopefully, us, as we speak, right now. We are also the fruits that came out of this tribulation. We, today. It's not about some Christians in the past. We are part of this great multitude. This vision is not in heaven. You remember the 144,000? They're on earth. Angels came down to seal them on earth. Those, this multitude is on earth. Not in heaven. They're all coming together to worship the Lord. What do we do on Sunday? We all come together as one family across all cultures to worship the Lord. And it isn't any particular Sunday they're talking about. You heard what they said? They came <clears throat> standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches. Palm branches. When do we bring palm branches? Palm Sunday. This is not any specific day. It isn't any specific celebration. It is Palm Sunday. That's why in our tradition, in the Eastern tradition, it used to be also in the West, we dress our kids in what color? White. We do it because of tradition, but we really don't know why we're doing it. That's why we're doing it. It's right here. Because they are dressed in white with palm branches in their hands. Right? That's why we have Palm Sunday. It isn't just because of the celebration of Jesus entering Jerusalem. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But it's really also because of this eternal celebration that happens in heaven. That's what we're celebrating. That's it. Now, if you recall from the fifth seal, we had the martyrs who were under the altar. Let's, let's read this passage again. This is um, in Revelation 6, chapter 6, verse 11 and following. Yes, if I'm not mistaken, it's going to be 6.11. Yes, 6.9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had, been, they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell among the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until, their number, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete. So one interpretation you will find is that some exegetes would say that 
this multitude is precisely the fullness of the number of all those who are going to be martyred. And in one sense, in the eschatological sense, at the end of the world, it is the right. Because at the end of the world, the numbers of all Christians are complete and God brings this world to an end. But in a historical sense, in a literal sense, it isn't. Not everyone who is dressed in a white robe has been martyred. Those who are martyred have a, a, a white robe, but not everyone. In this particular instance, you will see that we, we're told that these have washed their clothes and made it white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14. What does that mean? What does it mean to wash your clothes and make it white in the blood of the Lamb? Notice the irony. How you wash something in blood and it turns white. Remember, a lamb. We we're looking. We're expecting. Uh, we're expecting a lion and we see a lamb. Okay, and then later on we talk about the wrath of the lamb, and here we have white robes being made white in the blood. This irony, this paradox, that is the hallmark of Christianity. Again, how martyrs are actually seeding the church, not depleting the church. How do you make your robe white in the blood of the lamb? When do you do that? At baptism. At baptism, when you're baptized. Again, that's why when the baby is baptized, what do we do after the baby has been baptized? We dress the baby in white because the baby has washed his robe in the blood of the Lamb. Okay? So really this speaks of all baptized Christians who are faithful to the Lord. Furthermore, it is important to note that the elders said about them, In verse 16, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. By the way, that baby is not bothering me. Okay? Absolutely sure. Yes, you're welcome. Baby is not bothering me. So don't feel bad. Um, <clears throat> if these, if those, this multitude was the completion of the martyrs, why would the elders say what he just said? Because if they are the completion of the martyrs, they'd be dead, right? There'd be need, no need to talk about scorching heat. There'd be no need to talk about any of that. Furthermore, they are certainly not in heaven because if they were in heaven this whole conversation is redundant. You don't have to say any of that. They're on earth. Right? Most of the book of Revelation is not about heaven. It is about earth. It's about us living right now. That is why it is not logical to conclude that they are the completion of that number unless you look, look at it eschatologically, meaning at the end of times. Then it makes perfect sense. That's why the four senses are constantly helping us wade our way through these different visions. Now, the Feast of Dedication, if you recall the series we had on the temple, we looked at the different feasts, one of which is Hanukkah. Hanukkah, by the way, is a minor feast among the Jewish feasts. 
Uh, we tend to make it much bigger than it is because of its proximity with, Christ- with Christmas. But really, it is a minor feast. If you recall from the study, Hanukkah is the, called the Feast of Dedication. It com- commemorates the cleansing of the temple by Judas Maccabee and his brothers after the temple was desecrated by a- Antiochus Epiphanes. In our series on Daniel, we covered that extensively. So I'm not going to go through the, all the details, but that's what the feast is. It's the cleansing of the temple, the dedication of the temple after it has been uh, desecrated. And those of you who are uh, of um, who, who, who do come to St. Ephraim, you know that our part of our liturgical year, what do we start the, the, the liturgical year with? What is the first thing we do at the beginning of the year? Dedication of the church. And then the dedication of the people. These are the first two weeks of our liturgical year. That's why. It is a feast of dedication. We are rededicating the temple. We rededicate the people. Remember this constantly because it is important to realize that we are sinners. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that we've been dedicated to God. So these events took place in 164-165 B.C. So when the temple was dedicated, the Jews rejoiced with thanksgiving and branches of palm trees and with harps and cymbals and with vials and, and hymns and songs because there, were, there was destroyed a great enemy out of Israel. And you'll find that in the first book of Maccabees, uh, chapter 13. Now Jesus attended this feast. St. John tells us about it. You can find that in chapter 10 of the Gospel of St. John. And on Palm Sunday... He imitated Judas Maccabees by doing what? What did Jesus do at the temple? You remember when he threw all the... That was the cleansing of the temple. Right? It is interesting that we are talking about events that are going to surround the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? Effectively, what is the destruction of the temple? It is its cleansing. So the temple can be born anew and be born clean. Just as we die in baptism, we, we die and then we are raised in baptism with Christ, the temple dies and is raised with Christ and it's the church. All right? So it, there's an omnium stone to all of this to, to, to Christian of the first century who can put two and two together who understand the Feast of Hanukkah, who remember what Christ did at the temple, and see that these people are rejoicing, the multitude is rejoicing with palm branches, which is dedication to the temple, right after the 144,000 were sealed, which if you recall, reminds us of Ezekiel, where the 144, where another group of faithful were sealed prior to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. When you put all these elements together, when you know your scripture and your history, and you recall what Peter said at the day of Pentecost by quoting the book of Joel, you can start to see all the signs converging. And it makes perfect sense for you. No, when it was destroyed. Completely destroyed. Yes, the temple was, when the temple was completely destroyed.
You recall on Palm Sunday what happened? Jesus went up to Jerusalem and all these people received him, right? And they sang Hosanna to the king. They were waving palm branches. But effectively, these people did not produce fruit because <clears throat> not too far in the, in the future, three or four days actually, they're going to be standing there saying, crucify him. So these people did not produce fruits. Whereas those who are <coughs> celebrating now have produced fruits. So you can see how the communion of the saints work. And this is such an important subject for Catholics to understand. The communion of the saints. Christ did not make the multitude be dressed in white robes and then come and celebrate through His direct action. He made it happen by seating the 144,000. And it is their witness and their willingness to live their faith to the fullest that made the multitude present at the altar. You understand? Christ did not go straight to the multitude. He went to the 144,000. The sealing of the 144,000 was not just for them. It's not about me and mini-me. It's about the church. They were sealed so that they can produce fruit. And their martyrdom, their witness to Christ through the tribulation produced 144,000. And so it is for us. That's why we go to saints. That's why we ask the intercession of saints. Because they have been sealed by God. And they have produced fruits. And we are some of that fruit. That's how we have to think about our lives. If we can understand our life, our personal life, as part of the communion of the saints, then our actions will take a completely different meaning. No longer would we be thinking about ourselves. No longer would we be thinking about our suffering as something that just impacts us. No longer we would be wondering, why are you letting me suffer, O oh Lord, this long? Because the answer is readily available. If your heart is set with the Lord, and the Lord is making you suffer, it is because He loves you. Why? Because your suffering is producing fruit. You don't see it yet. No more than the acre who's planted in the earth can see the tree that's going to shoot up. But it is producing fruits. And if you are seeped in Scripture and see the pattern repeating over and over again, you will, you will have this discipline of faith to know, to understand, without having tangible proofs, you will know that it is exactly the reason why you're suffering. It is much greater than you. Much greater than your own concerns. Although those concerns are very important to God. So, if you are in the midst, in the throes of suffering, if you are failing at something, whatever the case may be, if you have a sin that you fall in over and over again and you detest yourself for falling into the sin and you're not able to get out of it and you're doing everything you can and you don't seem to be able to get out of it. Don't despair. God is using all this suffering for a purpose that is much greater than you. And you will see its fruits later. Here, if not up there. 
In essence, faith is supernatural reason. Faith is this faculty by which we can reason beyond what seems reasonable. But it requires training. It requires understanding the patterns of Scripture. It requires understanding how God deals with us. And when we see that, we say, this is the truth. I believe it. And we start applying that pattern immediately. That's how we grow in our faith. Now, joining in the heavenly liturgy, the innumerable multitude shouts, salvation, which is Hosanna, unto our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Ascribing to God and the Lamb what Rome claims for the Caesars. So let's put a little bit of historical context here. Mark Anthony said of Julius Caesar that his only work was to save where anyone needed to be saved. And now, if indeed this is taking, if, if John's exile on Patmos is during the Neronian persecution, then Nero sits on the, te- on the throne, and Seneca said of him, and I quote, He is like me in much, in form and appearance, in his poetry and singing and playing, and as the red of morning drives away dark night, as neither haze nor mist endure before the sun's rays, as everything becomes bright when my chariot appears, so it is when Nero ascends the throne. Seneca makes Apollo, the, the Roman god, speaks. So Apollo is saying of Nero that he is like me, like him in everything, effectively saying that Nero is a god. His golden locks, his fair countenance shine like the sun as it breaks through the clouds. Strife, injustice, and envy collapse before him. He restores to the world the golden age. If you recall from the letters, emperor worship was prevalent. That's part of it. And here, there is an answer. Hosanna, salvation, comes from the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Okay? That statement has also political impact. Christians back then were not politically correct and were not afraid to say the truth the way the truth was to be said. They were not afraid to engage the culture and point out those areas in the culture that are lacking, that are weak, that are failing. A Christian is never afraid of engaging the culture appropriately, wisely. We have to. Then we see the role of the angels. The angels, too, are seen here in this heavenly worship service. They join in. Right? They join in. And they encircle the congregation around the throne and give a sevenfold blessing to God in praise. It is interesting that they are encircling the congregation. We are now in the midst of the angels. Whereas in the Old Testament, there was a complete separation between us and the angels. We were kind of second class citizens. No more. Now we are in the midst and they're encircling it. And so during Mass, you have to use the eyes of faith to see the angelic host all around us. By the way, when we speak of, speak of angelic host, I notice that actually more than one person is confused about this term. We don't use the word host as in a host of a party. 
right? That's not what we mean by angelic host. A host is a military term. It refers to a division, right? A host of angels is a division, is a military term of a division of angels ready for battle. That's what a host means. That's why we say the Lord is the Lord of hosts. doesn't mean that he's a super cook. All right? means that he is the chief of the army, of the angelic army. That's what we mean. So they surround the angel, the, the, the throne, and I hope by then I don't have to point out to you the seven, one more time, right? Seven blessings. And surrounded by two words of oath, Amen, I believe. Blessing and glory, blessing and glory, those we give to the Lord. And wisdom, wisdom. So the angels are declaring, are giving God wisdom. Why? Because they are now starting to see unfold before their eyes the fullness of the plan of God. Angels did not know from the beginning how God was to reunite this family of angels and men. They did not know that. And just as this revelation, as this manifestation of God's glory is happening for us, it is happening for them. And they see the wisdom of God and they give Him glory. Thanksgiving, honor, power, might. Power, might to our Lord, to our God, our God, ours and theirs, one family. We are one family in God, angels and men. Another important point is the bodily position of worshipers. You notice, as in many other biblical descriptions, the position is noted. They fell flat on their faces. Now, obviously, angels don't have bodies, but why do they do it this way? All the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces. They don't have faces. They're spirits. So, Clearly, taking this bodily form is to show us something important about our worship. The reason why in the Eastern Rites we stand and we bow comes precisely from this liturgy. In this liturgy in heaven, there's standing and there's bowing and falling on faces. Kneeling is a specific Western tradition. Because in the West... In order to show deference to the emperor, you would kneel. In the east, to show deference to the emperor, you would bow. The point I want to make to you is that the liturgy is heavenly. It's given to us from heaven. Every rite is precious because every rite is a, is a ray of light. It's a perspective of the heavenly liturgy. It expresses a truth and a beauty of the heavenly liturgy in a specific way. That's why all the rites of the church are precious and are all equal, regardless of number. Regardless of number. That is why the Second Vatican Council is so important for us of the Eastern tradition because it sent such a clear signal saying, delatinize. Move away from the Latin liturgy. It isn't yours. Because prior to that, the push from many people in the Vatican was to Latinize 
the Eastern liturgies. And as a result, they obscured that specific beauty that was in those liturgies. And the Second Vatican Council, thankfully, thankfully, brought that back and said, no, don't do that. God willed your liturgy to be this way, and you must preserve it this way. The other point I want to make to you, people don't make liturgy. God makes liturgy. Because liturgy is the language of heaven. The implication, my friends, is that when you are celebrating the liturgy in the Latin rite, please don't hold hands. It's not part of the liturgy. The liturgy doesn't tell you to hold hands. You don't hold hands. Because if you were to hold hands, think about the liturgy being celebrated in heaven, when they're not holding hands, what would you look like? You look like the oddball. There's a dissonance between what you're doing and what is going, being done in heaven. And so I'll ask you, are you in heaven? No, because there is harmony and unity. Now, if you're celebrating the liturgy and the Eastern rites, let's say the Maronite rite, please don't kneel. Because if you kneel, what would you look like? The oddball. We don't kneel in Eastern rites. Don't kneel. Follow the liturgy. Don't follow what... Don't do something that is warm fuzzy. It gives you warm fuzzy. I feel really good kneeling. Well, that's wonderful. Wait for the Mass to be done. Kneel all you want. Because that's your personal time for worship. If the liturgy tells you do not not kneel, you don't kneel. You stand and you bow. You do like what the liturgy asks you. And be, be aware of that. Because this is very important for you to show God that you love Him and you obey Him and you put His Word before your own comfortable habits. Now, my kids learned that. The, the, the greatest confusion we had is that in the, in the Maronite rite, when you say the Our Father, the liturgy asks you to open your arms. Right? In the Latin rite, you're not supposed to open your arms. You keep them folded. This whole business of opening your arms and holding hands, that's a wonderful little heresy that has been created here in the United States. Or in Canada, I don't know where. Somewhere. But that's a heresy. It's a small heresy. It's a minor heresy, but that's what it is. So it took my kids a little bit of time to figure it out. Well, why do we do it here? We don't do it over there. So I had to explain to them that we don't make, we don't manufacture liturgy. We follow the liturgy as it has been handed down to us, and we show this way our reverence and our love to God. It is interesting to note that the uh, Calvinist Chilton had this to say. When rationalistic Protestants abandoned the use of the kneeling rail in worship, they contributed to the outbreaks of individualistic pietism that have brought so much ruin to the church. Man needs liturgy and symbolism. God created us that way. When the church denies man this aspect of his God-given nature, he will seek to fulfill it by inadequate or sinful substitutes. A return to biblically-based liturgy is not a cure-all, but will prove to be a corrective to the shallow, frenetic, and misplaced spirituality that has been the legacy of centuries of liturgical poverty. That's a Protestant speaking. 
So now let's look at the explanation of the elder. We said earlier that washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb is a sign of baptism. Then the multitude serves God in His temple day and night. Day and night. Remember who was serving God in the temple day and night? It's almost a quotation from uh, one of the Gospels. Very good. And the prophetess. And the prophetess. Serving God in His temple day and night. Never leaving the temple. Who else is supposed to serve God in His temple day and night? Here's what I want you to do. Point your index up. And then turn it around. And get it to point your nose. Yeah. That face at the end of that finger? Yeah. It's supposed to be serving God in His temple day and night. The question is how? Does this mean we come and we camp here? We just, you know, put bunk beds and we sleep in the church? Of course not. It's an image. But this is an image that has a profound meaning. It brings us back to this conversation I had with you earlier. Everything we do, everything we do, is to serve God day and night. This is, by, by the way, the basis for the monastic prayer when they get up in the night and pray. It's right here. All right? And when they pray, when they serve God day and night, who are they imitating? They're imitating the cherubims, who in chapter 4, verse 18, were told, or those creatures, the, the angelic beings, they serve God day and night. So it's an angelic behavior that we have to put on, to think about everything we do as a service to God, day and night. And when they do that, they receive a characteristic blessing of the covenant, which is to be overshadowed by God. Let's read this text again. Therefore, as they, as they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night within His temple, and He who sits upon the throne will shelter them with His presence. That is a key word. That's a very important word. To shelter is to give what? To give protection, right? That's what a shelter is. This is a very rich biblical image. Let's spend a little bit of time on it. This is first referring, it refers to the shade that the glory cloud provided the Israelites as they were going out of Egypt. Right? It was the overshadowing, the Holy Spirit present. It also refers us to Genesis when the Spirit overshadowed the waters. It refers us to Luke when the Spirit overshadowed Our Lady. It, ref it refers us to Exodus when the Spirit overshadowed the tabernacle. All those overshadowing are the sign of protection of God through the Holy Spirit. So, unless we have been working hard at developing a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, a great love and a great devotion to the Holy Spirit, we are missing out on that protection. He's the one. That's what we call Him what? The Advocate, the Consoler, the Protector. All those Attributes are given to the Holy Spirit in the role that He plays through Scripture. He overshadows. He covers. He protects. And there are 
In the Deuteronomy, for instance, chapter 32, verse 10 through 11, we see that this canopy is actually filled with many thousands of angels. So it's the angelic presence as well. Someone pointed out to me that over the altar at the old mission, the first mission here in San Diego, right over the altar there's a canopy. That's why. That is why there is the canopy. This is what it means. Right? That's why you also have it in the Vatican. That's why you have it at the Abbey. If you go to Prince of Peace Abbey, you will see this sort of a coverage. Like, 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 that's what it is. It's the shadow of it's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the covering, the protection that the Holy Spirit gives us. And there are too many references for me to quote to you. Let's see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. 11 references out of Psalms alone about that. But I'm, I'm going to go through one Psalm in particular. But the most important quote you will find in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4 through 5. I'm going to read it to you. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy and a pavilion. You can see that this particular pro prophecy of Isaiah speaks directly to those events we're talking about right now. It speaks of the cleansing of Jerusalem. So the, those 144 has been numbered, have been sealed because the, the Jerusalem is going to be cleansed. And by spirit of fire and by spirit of judgment. And after that, over all of Mount Zion, which is the church, there's going to be a canopy that covers the church. This is the infallible sign that God gave the church. The Holy Spirit shall be with her till the consummation of the ages. And that's why the church will never fail. You will find a similar language in the second book of Samuel, chapter 22, verse 12, in Psalm 18, verse 11, in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 44, and in one of my most favorite psalms, Psalm 91, which I'm going to read to you because I'm going to show you how the book of Revelation illuminates text in the Old Testament. And this is a particular, particularly good example. This is a psalm that uh, is very uh, dear to my heart. It is part of the night prayers uh, within the Maronite liturgy. It is sung every night. If, and if you've had the, the chance to go to the Maronite monks of the Adoration, you will know what I mean. Um, here it is. Psalm 91. I want, to, I want you to listen to those words through the book of Revelation and you will see that they take on completely different meaning than what you expect it to be had you not been through the study. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who abides in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, 
nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. What is he talking about? When he says he will deliver you from the stand of Fowler and from the deadly pestilence, which pestilence is that? Is it an act of the, of the evil one? Notice, pestilence, arrows, you remember the bow of the first horseman? What is he talking about? He's talking precisely about a judgment that is coming and how the faithful one will be protected. Do you understand? He's not talking about an action of the evil one. He's talking about a covenantal judgment coming down and how you will be protected. Let me read it to you again. Listen to it through the four horses of, of, the, uh, uh, of the first four signs, the first four seals. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. He, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. All these events are in store with the four horsemen. And he's going to deliver you from them. That's why the sealing happened. A thousand may fall at your side, then ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. The pestilence, the destruction, the arrows are for the wicked. You understand? Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your habitation, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. For He will give His angels charge of you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you, you, you dash your foot against a stone. He will give His angels charge of you. Right? He's already done that, right? You have a guardian angel. That's what a guardian angel is doing for you, day in and day out. Because you trust in His name. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he cleaves to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. Notice, it doesn't say, I will take him out of trouble. I will spare him trouble. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Right? This is a powerful, powerful statement about the working of Jesus Christ throughout history, how He constantly is chastising the world, how He's constantly cleansing His church, and He's constantly providing His, His protection, His love, His support, His grace to all those who are in trouble, to all those who suffer in His name. The cloud canopy of God's presence is also called a covering. It's also called booths or tabernacles, which you will find in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33 through 43. So covering, tabernacle, same idea, same notion. So as the restoration prophets saw, this feast was an acted out prophecy of the 
conversion of all nations, the, the fulfilling of the covenant, and the filling of the covenant people with the entire world. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of the most important feasts, if you remember the last feast in the in in cycle of the liturgical cycle of the Jews, the Feast of Tabernacles is the only one every man is required to go up to Jerusalem on a pilgrim, the Feast of Tabernacles. On the last day, God spoke through Haggai, the prophet, and said, I will shake all the nations, and it will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house, the temple, with glory. You'll find that in, a, in it's, uh, the, the second chapter of Haggai, ch- uh, verse 7. Zechariah prophesied of the meaning of this feast in terms of the conversion of the nations and the sanctification of every area of life. That's in chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah. Now in the last days, during the celebration of this feast, Jesus Christ was there. And if you remember, this particular feast has is, is a long feast where water plays a major important role and drinking is, is, um, plays an important role. And in it, we, we see in the, in the Gospel of John, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Which is kind of a really odd thing to say about a feast that is full of drinking. On the last day, saying, If anybody's, thir- anybody's thirsty out there? Normally you're not thirsty. You've been drinking all week. But that's the point. If what you're receiving right now does not satisfy you, you're going to be thirsty. And if you are, then come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. By the way, this particular verse is nowhere to find in scripture. This is really interesting to our Protestant friends when they say all you need is scripture. It's not in scripture. But this he spoke of the, of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Right? So when he says he will cover you with this, he will shelter them, this is to be understood as the expansion to the age of the Holy Spirit. It is the expansion of the role of the Holy Spirit across the whole world. Effectively, this vision, those seals from first to last, lead us to what? To an inescapable conclusion. Inescapable. There's an innumerable multitude who's going to be praising God. It happens at every age. It will happen at the end of ages. That's what this is all about. The churches of the first century, which is really interesting, uh, this other uh, noted uh, theologian, Adolf Harnack, points something something out about the Christians of the first century. Let me read this to you. The remarkable thing is that although Christians were by no means numerous till after the middle of the second century, they recognized that Christianity formed the central point of humanity as the field of political history, as in the field of, the, of political history, as well as its determining factor. How could it be that a small group would look at themselves as the focal point of history and as the moving and shaking of history? Is amazing. He said, that would be something to be expected from the Jewish nation, which was already established, but not for such a small group, unless they looked upon themselves as being one nation, 
as being the new Israel and as being able to change the history of the world, which they did. For how would it be possible for 12 ragged apostles to take on the might of the Roman Empire and turn it into a Christian state? How? Because they had this conviction that they have seen how this all ends. They have seen what it looks like at the end. They know what it is. And perhaps it is, it is fitting to finish this with a postscript. In Nero's Circus Maximus, the scene of his bloody and re- revolting slaughters of Christians, there stood a great stone obelisk, silent witness to the valiant conduct of those brave saints who endured tribulation and counted all things as lost for the sake of Christ. The bestial Nero and his henchmen have long since passed from the scene to their eternal reward, but the obelisk still stands now in the center of the great square in front of St. Peter's Basilica. You ever wonder what that obelisk does that is doing there? This big, big, big pointy thing standing there? You ever wonder what it's doing there? You know why it's there? Chiseled on its base are these words taken from the, the, from the overcoming martyrs' hymns of triumph. Christus vincit, Christus reniat, Christus imperat. Which is being interpreted, Christ is conquering, Christ is reigning, Christ rules over all. That's why it's in that plaza. That's what it means. And we are all a part of it. The opening of the seals is the signal that God is about to fulfill what He has promised. That He will rule this world for the rest of the ages through the church. And He will establish the church on firm foundation. That's what the opening of the seal is a preparation for. That's what the signal is all about. And what we're going to see in the foregoing chapters, precisely how this is going to come about. So, as we go through this period of Lent, and I'm hoping that some of you, who, or all of you, are going through Lent, are right now, you know, wishing for Lent to be over. If you're not, you're not working hard enough. All right? You still have time. If your sacrifice is not causing you to wish for Lent to be over, you're not working hard enough. As we go through this time of preparation, don't just focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ as this one event in history where Christ alone is raised. That would be missing the point. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all this multitude. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all the church throughout the ages. For just as Christ surely rose from the dead, so the church will surely conquer the world. And we all do our bit and our little part in this grand saga by offering those sacrifices that God put in our way. And always remember, when 
you are having a sense of defeat, of loss, when you feel completely on the ground, this is the moment of your greatest triumph. It's always like that. It's a paradox. And you have to see it with the eyes of faith. May God bless you. We have some minutes for questions. Yes. Um, because it comes from a from a uh, from a Latin word uh, that uh, that uh, probably means bread, I think. But I really don't know. That's a good question. I, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Just as host as a host is not related to, yeah. But it is a good question. Yes. The obelisk? It's not in the form of a cross. No, it should not be a cross. That's precisely the point. You see, this the, the obelisk was a sign of victory of pagan empires. It, no, no, no. The, the, look, the fact that the Masons can take a decidedly Christian Catholic symbol and do stuff with it has no bearing on the history of the first century. We should not change things because today we have a, a group that may exist for another 200 years who's doing crazy stuff, right? No more that we should change 144,000 because the Jehovah Witness decided it was them, right? It, it is essentially the conversion of all the nations which is represented, symbolized in that obelisk standing there. We'll have more to say about that in the coming chapters. By the Romans, not by the church. Right, yes. Yes, it's always a sign of power. Yes. Yes, what we have to do is understand it, not necessarily in the same tragic terms, because this is considered to be one of the greatest tribulations, but we need to understand this as a pattern that applies to us. This is the moral sense, where we say, we're all been sealed in baptism, so therefore we should expect trials and sufferings. Our problem is that we don't. Right? We don't. We expect everything else but trials and sufferings. So we typically have a pagan attitude when it comes to our own lives. We've not been, at our core, we're still pagan in a sense. We have not accepted that suffering. We've not understood it as part of our journey. That's how it is. So the quicker we can go about accepting that, and that means we work on those little frustrations that God put in our path every day. Things don't go our way. It's too hot. It's too cold. The little aches, the little pains, the people that we don't, we can't stand. All those little things God put in our way is His way of training us and helping us make an offering of our lives. So I'm not saying we have to now take this and start thinking in terms of you know, dramatic things. Somebody killing us. In a, in, a, in, a, in a traumatic way. I'm simply saying, take that as the pattern for your own life and start aligning your life and looking at it and saying, now, I'll tell you, I'm the first one to confess, this is not easy. That is the hardest thing you can actually undertake. Why? Because you're going to be facing a very stubborn, willful, disobedient donkey. And if you don't see the donkey, stand before the mirror. And you see the, the ears twitching very quickly. All right? It's not easy. I tell you this much. If you, let me put it this way. If you have not yet had a fight with your guardian angel, I mean, a really bad one, 
where you were this much from calling him names, then there are only two outcomes possible. Number one, you're a saint. Like St. Teresa of Little Child Jesus. Like St. John of the Cross. I'm not saying this. and I am not making fun of anybody. I'm, I'm serious. Those are the only two possible outcomes. Either you're that. You've already completely conformed your will to the will of God. Pray for me. Or you're not working hard enough. Simple as that. You're not working hard enough. It's going to require tough work. And it's going to bring you to the limit of yourself. And you're not going to like it. And you're going to be upset. And you're going to be angry. And you're going to... Why? It's a lot of work to get this donkey moving. But this is what... That's what I'm talking about. Right? We're too easy on ourselves. We're hard on everybody else. We're too easy on ourselves. Turn that around. Excuse any default, any defect you see in anybody. And work on yourself. Yes. They are going to come, absolutely. And there are there are acts of love on God's part to show us ourselves and the areas we need to work on. So don't look at those tribulations as something that should anger you. But that's our first reaction. We don't want them. Right? Because we're donkeys. We just don't want them. But if, as we become more and more aligned with God's will, we start to have a conversation with God over those things that are hitting us. Okay, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? Okay, Lord, what, I should, what should I be doing now? All right, Lord, uh, help me here. I, I don't know. Then we're starting to become children of God. I'll finish with these words. Blessed uh, uh, Mother Teresa. She's saint yet? No. Blessed uh, Teresa of Calcutta used to say, Sufferings is God's sweetest caress. And she meant it because she understood that this is how God is helping her to become a saint. That's the power of this book, to make us realize, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid of what's going to happen, China conquering the world, or whatever. And start concentrating on God's love for you, being mindful of His victory. It's complete. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.